So if you've been a pastor all your life, man and boy, and um, you come to Christmas, you have this slightly kind of sinking feeling when you come to the time of preparing your message. Because what else can you say? I mean, is there another angle? Is there, a, is there another way of, of capturing the importance of the season? And for somebody like me, then, of course, having something new to say is, is enormously important. So, so finding something relevant is, is really essential. Given that, as we approach Christmas, all of us know that we're pressed in on one side by sentimentalism and pressed in on another side by consumerism and I'm pretty much the same way. I'll tear up with everybody else when the candles are lit at the end of the service. It's just, it's the rule, isn't it? Isn't that the rule? You're supposed to have a little kind of glistening in the eyes and you remember Christmas has gone by and, and you remember family and friends and those who are with you and, and perhaps those who've gone on ahead. That is one of the really significant things of a milestone like Christmas. And, and frankly, there's not a lot wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with sentiment kind of gathering around a milestone in our year, a milestone in our life. There's nothing wrong in building memories into children's lives. It's a, it's a really good thing. But so often, sentiment and sentimentalism will draw us away into an emotional reaction that will prevent us from engaging with the true message of Christmas. The same, of, of course, is true in regard to the presents and the gifts that we've been wrapping and that we've been putting under our tree because, of course, we're all caught up in this world of consumerism. Some of my friends who are kind of radicals and they think that you know, Christians really ought not to be involved in this say to me that we ought really not to be not to be consumers. And I said, well, that, that'd be like saying to a goldfish, you ought not to really swim in the water in the bowl. I mean, it's not like that we have any, any real choice. Of course, we can choose the degree to which we embrace consumerism, but it's not like we can suddenly stop using electricity or kind of wearing clothes and eating food. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just the normal thing. And of course, we all have little traditions that, that kind of invest in this. I mean, I've got my grandkids here tonight, or two out of five, and uh, one of the traditions that we have in our family is Papa's present on Christmas Eve. And um, they're very small children at this, at this stage, and so they don't really realise what it is that I'm saying when I say, okay, this is Target. You can have anything in here you want. Now, I'm not going to do that when they're teenagers. But right now, 
I have to encourage them to spend more money. You know, they come back with the tiniest little thing and they say, well, can I have this, Papa? I say, sure, you could have that. And maybe two of them if you wanted. <laughs> so, we, so we all have these, these traditions, these delightful ways of engaging in the season. But how would we, how would we look again at the Christmas message and find fresh relevance? Well, just a few weeks ago, for those of you who were here, we looked at the worldview that is the contemporary worldview that has emerged in the last couple of decades or so. It is the worldview that is now current in America. It is the worldview that has emerged with the largest percentage of the population called the millennials. Hooray for the millennials, we're glad that you're here. This, this group within the population have overtaken people of my age as the largest group in, in America. And of course, their worldview is slightly different from everybody else's. Those who have studied these things and have made it their academic challenge to, to truly delve into the depths so that they can understand how people think. And so in understanding how people think, they can, they can help each of us communicate more effectively. A man called Professor Christian Smith up at Notre Dame is, is one such individual. What they have discovered is that there is a worldview that is called moral therapeutic deism. Moral, therapeutic, deism. Moral, because people holding this worldview, and it's the majority of people in America, believe that there is actually a right and a wrong. And that there is a right and a wrong way to act, a right and a wrong way to think, and a right and a wrong way for you to encourage other people to behave. Therapeutic, because in the long-standing tradition of American life, we believe that being happy is something that all of us should aspire to. So doing the right thing, being happy, and believing in God, deism, believing in God but knowing that God is not particularly involved is the general worldview of the people that you encounter and is probably, if we took a quick poll, is probably the general view of most people here this evening. Moral, therapeutic deism. Now, if that is the worldview, that is the world and the way that we understand the world that the Bible will need to address. And so as I read this familiar Christmas story, I'm going to ask you to listen carefully again and note in this passage whether you can hear whether there's a right and a wrong thing that people ought to be doing if they were the characters in this story. Think about whether there is something that causes any of the characters in this story to be happy that you can identify with. And then ask yourself, is there anything in this story 
this story that we've heard so many times that addresses this idea that God exists, but he's not particularly close to us. I'm going to read to you from Matthew chapter one and verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, a virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home to be his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Three characters that are essential to the story and one character who, of course, is not so much peripheral, but is a secondary character, the angel. There is Joseph, there is Mary, and there is Jesus. Surely, if we're thinking about somebody doing the right thing, we have to look at Joseph. Joseph is going to be held up for public scorn. He may well be held up for abuse and alienation. People will be nudging one another and whispering as he goes by in the, in the marketplace because everyone knows that his betrothed is with child. And there's only one way that she could be with child. And so Joseph has to consider these things. The degree of public disgrace that will surround him, the suggestions that he's not only broken the law, but he's put himself and his to-be wife at risk. Because if there was anybody around who was a true moralist, then they would stone them to death because that is the penalty for such sin at the time of Jesus. But Joseph does the right thing. I wonder whether we would do similarly in the same circumstances. It would be a tough decision, wouldn't it? It would probably require an angelic visitation for most of us. Because it would be hard to believe what Mary was saying was right. Remember, Mary has received the news from Gabriel and she's gone for the first three months to, as it were, 
hide away from the public disgrace to be with her family down south with Elizabeth. But by the time she gets back, there's no mistaking that this is most certainly the case that Mary is going to have a baby. What should Joseph do? He did the right thing. You and I living with the worldview of the moral therapeutic deist, we can look at him and we can say, do you know what? Joseph could be alive today and we could hold him, hold him up as a, as a character reference, as, a, as an exemplar of, of good behavior. What about Mary? Mary, of course, as the mother of the child, is now gripped by all of the excitement, the fears, the anticipation and anxiety that always are associated with a pregnancy. Just here in our congregation, we heard of Corey and Krisha's little challenge recently and them finding that Krisha was being flown off to Cincinnati to make sure that both she and the child were, were gonna be okay. Imagine this young girl, Mary. It's going to be the thing that authenticates her femininity within her culture. It's gonna be the thing that, that undergirds her status, her place, the way that people understand her role at the time. Thankfully, it's not the case quite so much today. And all of that has been stolen away from her, it feels. Because if it had happened in the normal way, then everybody would have been able to be excited with her and she would have been able to be happy in an unbridled way. But Mary had this enormous challenge. I don't know what it was that her family said to her, but I can imagine the conversations, can't you? You can imagine the challenging, the challenging kinds of accusations and how people would roll their eyes at stories of angels and of, and of virgin births. But Mary, Mary, we're told, when she met with her relative, Elizabeth, chose the path of happiness rather than the path of fear. She said, my soul magnifies the Lord. In other words, I'm going to choose happiness. I'm going to choose this gift as a joyful, as a blessed, as a happy thing. It's amazing, isn't it? We look at this ancient story, a story that we've heard time and time again. And here we are, we're looking at it in relation to the worldview that's only emerged in the last couple of decades. And we find that the moralist and the person that's seeking happiness can find, can find something here in this passage to help them understand what it means to connect with and understand and engage with God. 
But what about the third person in the story? Jesus. You will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, the contemporary word meaning Joshua, the Redeemer, the Lord redeems. You'll call him Jesus because he'll save his people from their sins. The blood that was flowing around that baby child would one day be given as an adult for the sins of the whole world. Mary, who has chosen the path of joy to welcome this this baby into the world as she wipes the blood from that baby's body and wraps him in swaddling cloths will one day wipe the blood from his dead body and wrap him in cloths as he's taken down from the cross where he died on our behalf. And what is it then that Matthew and through Matthew the Holy Spirit would say to us living in a world dominated by the worldview of moral therapeutic deism where God exists but he's not involved. What the scriptures would say is this, Jesus is called Emmanuel. Emmanuel, God with us. Yes, God exists. Yes, God is high and lifted up. Yes, God is transcendent above all of our imaginations and thoughts, but God is with us. And he's demonstrated that commitment in the person of Jesus. He is Emmanuel. Jesus said this, he said, when you go out into the world to take my good news and to make disciples followers of me, I will be with you. That's right at the end of Matthew's gospel. So right at the beginning of Matthew's gospel, we have Emmanuel, God with us. Right at the end of Matthew's gospel, we have Jesus saying, I will be with you always. And Jesus in chapter 18 of the same gospel, Matthew, chapter 18, verse 20 says this, whenever two or more are gathered in my name. I'm there in the midst of you. So Jesus is here. Jesus is right next to you. Jesus is longing not only to be near you, but to accompany you. The way that he speaks of it is that by his spirit, He will live within you, guiding, helping, encouraging and correcting. He'll give us a new life by his spirit because he says, I stand at the door and knock. I don't want to simply be with you. I want to be in your life for always. Now in the next few weeks, We're going to be gathering in an evening for a meal on a Tuesday evening for a very short talk that we'll be 
the opportunity to prompt discussion and then we're going to discuss around tables following a program called Alpha. You see, the thing is, I've noticed over the years that I've been ministering that many people really need a process by which they can really think through what it means for Jesus to take residence in their life. They need to think through the implications of what it means for their life to be given over to following Jesus. There are some who are here tonight who have written in pencil, but so long and so desire to have what is written in pencil there in ink. Something that you believe but have never fully made a permanent reality in your life. Alpha. Alpha is going to be our opportunity to talk these things through. Whether you're already a believer or not, whether you're a person that has your belief in pencil, or whether you're a person who's just interested in having that conversation. At the end, there are going to be folks, I'm going to be here with some invitations. Invitations for you to consider the important questions of life. We live in a world of moral, therapeutic deism. All of us want to do the right thing. All of us want to pursue happiness and find happiness for those that we love. And I can't imagine that there is anyone here tonight celebrating Christmas in a time of worship that would not want to know that God is with them. Every day, resident in their life, guiding, challenging, correcting, encouraging. What we want to do here at Apex is to give everyone multiple opportunities to think through these enormously important questions and to do it in a non-threatening and in a non-judgmental environment where you can just talk about the things that you need to talk about. We'd love you to join us in the new year on this new journey. But right now for this evening, I would remind you of Joseph doing the right thing, of Mary choosing happiness in the midst of a culture that would want to shame her, and of Jesus, who is God with us, right here as we gather in his name. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came for us that the blood that coursed through the body of, of that baby was the blood that you gave for us on the cross. Jesus, we are astonished that you, the God of heaven, would come for the likes of us. Lord, we're grateful, we're honoured, we're blessed. And so, Lord, we want to take seriously what it is that you've done. And we want, Lord, in this new year to find new momentum. We want to find new, new life. We want to find, Lord, new anticipation and hope of what it is that you can do in our life. And we pray, Lord, that you'd meet us and that you'd take us on. And we pray these things, Jesus, 
in your name. And all God's people say,